The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. The fight for reality. Welcome to my weekly report for Thursday, December 12th, 2019. Thank you for listening to this independent news, which appreciates your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. If you watch any of these TV shows, the Law & Order series, the NCIS series, All Rise, Bull, How to Get Away with Murder, or Better Call Saul, you like lawyers. You like defense lawyers, you like prosecutors, you like judges, and you like justice. Real-life lawyers, meanwhile, are betting that Donald J. Trump has committed impeachable conduct and that lawmakers would be within their rights to remove him from office. Republicans are betting the lawyers are wrong. In his Texas twang, Republican Congressman Louis Gohmert proudly told the nation's cameras, All I got to say is, if you love America, mamas, don't let your babies grow up to go to Harvard or Stanford Law School. Louis Gohmert graduated from Baylor University's Law School. Republican Congressman Doug Collins, the ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee, told the cameras, America will see why most people don't want to go to law school. Collins graduated from Atlanta's John Marshall Law School. Republican Florida Congressman Matt Gates graduated from William & Mary's Law School and tried to paint law professors as being out of touch. Meanwhile, more than 500 legal scholars had that same day signed an open letter saying what Trump's done is impeachable and that it wouldn't be out of line to yank him out of office. The 500 professors are from our most prestigious universities, Harvard, Yale, Columbia, UC Berkeley, and other top schools. And they agreed about Trump that, quote, his conduct is precisely the type of threat to our democracy that the founders heard when they included the remedy of impeachment in the Constitution, end quote. But conservative America doesn't care much these days about what intellectuals think or what lawyers think or scholars or scientists, nor do they care about the views of people who've dedicated their lives to learning. That is not an unfounded claim on my part. There are numbers to back up that claim. A Pew Research Center survey two years ago showed that those who consider themselves conservatives are less likely to believe that universities and colleges are a plus for the U.S., among conservatives, 58% now say institutions of higher learning have a negative effect on our country. That's up from last year's 45%. This nation is now led by a man who, although he went to the Ivy League school Wharton, dismisses scientific evidence of climate change. He was asked on MSNBC in March of 2016 who he'd been consulting on foreign policy. His answer? I'm speaking for myself, number one, because I have a very good brain, and I've said a lot of things. My primary consultant is myself, and I have a very good instinct for this stuff. End quote. Old school conservative George Will says anti-intellectualism on the political right has grown right alongside the growth of populism. Quoting him, populism inevitably becomes anti-intellectual. Now, what was that we were saying about 500 law professors and impeachment? For a dictionary definition of populism, look again at the Trump video that went viral over the weekend as he talked about walking back even more environmental and climate protective regulations. Knowing that there is both pain and truth in every joke, Trump joked about the new LED bulbs. He says make people look orange. Although LED bulbs come in a range of colors, the market is flooded with LEDs that emit pure white light, daylight. But Trump was zeroing in on a complaint of the uninformed, 
capitalizing on it, partly to justify his slashing of government regulations, but mostly because he's running for re-election. And if that was a populist play, then this one won the day. Trump also complained about the modern low-flow toilets that conserve water in a world with threatened resources. Trump ridiculously claimed that even people with abundant water supplies are, quote, flushing toilets 10 times, 15 times, as opposed to once. Again, he was cashing in on a complaint and exaggerating it for effect, appealing to voters who may have to flush twice. This is populism. This is the invasive growth that is strangling intellectualism journalism, and critical thinking. No facts, please. No thinking. But there is hope, as pointed out here last week, about the independents and the undecideds. Numbers crunched by 538 indicated that about 25% of the public is undecided on impeachment. Another poll shows that 25% of us believe that minds can be changed by the impeachment process. Either side in this polarized climate would die for that 25%, or at least a majority of it. And a Quinnipiac University survey found that although a mere 8% of those who favor impeachment are willing to change their minds, the number is more than twice that, 17%, among those who are currently against impeachment. Among the minds that matter most right now, the independents and the undecideds, the numbers show us minds can change. And it is the hearts and minds of those in the middle where the impeachment battle is being waged, a fight for reality. The White House and congressional Republicans have had four objections to this impeachment so far. First, they complained the House had launched the inquiry without holding a floor vote to begin impeachment. And then Democrats took a floor vote, and it passed, and they proceeded. The White House and congressional Republicans then objected to the closed-door hearings at the start of the inquiry, And then Democrats held open public hearings, and they proceeded with impeachment. The White House and congressional Republicans then objected to not being able to call defense witnesses in the Intelligence Committee hearings. So Democrats then invited White House lawyers to appear before the committee to stage their defense. The White House refused to do so and declared the House had abused its power by impeaching the president, when in fact the Constitution requires the House to do exactly that in a situation in which the president has met any of the Founding Fathers' impeachable criteria. Now, the White House and congressional Republicans are objecting to the impeachment taking place during the holiday season. Democrats had only one response to that complaint, namely that the House voted to impeach Bill Clinton on December 9th, the same day the president lighted the national Christmas tree, and that Republicans passed articles of impeachment on December 19th, Six days before Christmas. Now, to most lawyers, it doesn't look like the kind of letter any lawyer would send, much less the White House counsel. As you know, it begins, your impeachment inquiry is completely baseless and has violated basic principles of due process and fundamental fairness. The letter is signed in big Trumpian letters by Pat Cipollone, the White House lawyer, and although it is a short two-paragraph letter, it continues... Adopting articles of impeachment, it says, would be a reckless abuse of power by House Democrats and would constitute the most unjust, highly partisan, and unconstitutional attempt at impeachment in our nation's history. The White House had been invited to request witnesses, review the evidence, ask questions, and make objections. We will not participate in this process, says the letter. 
Since House Republicans proved unwilling or unable to discredit the serious charges faced by the president, it will soon be up to Republicans in the Senate to offer a vigorous defense, or at least try. And the Republican-held Senate stands ready, it believes, to do just that. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell had set aside the entire month of January for the impeachment trial, which would also keep Democratic senators running for president off the campaign trail in the crucial month leading up to the Iowa caucus on February 3rd. And while the White House refused to give House Democrats the time of day, it would be all up in the Senate trial aggressively, we heard. For one thing, they planned to finally call the witnesses that were deemed irrelevant in the House, Hunter Biden, Adam Schiff, Nancy Pelosi, and the whistleblower, to name a few. Democrats hope to call John Bolton, Mike Pompeo, Mick Mulvaney, Rick Perry, and Rudy Giuliani, who are far more relevant to the charges against Trump. It'll be up to Supreme Court Justice John Roberts in the Senate trial to decide who and who will not testify. And that's important, because the Washington Post reports the Senate is zeroing in on a plan to make the trial quick, with no witnesses at all, and with a quick dismissal of the charges against Trump. To do that, however, they have to have the votes and the cooperation of Justice Roberts in denying witnesses called by House prosecutors. Also, a quick trial is not what Trump wants. He wants a spectacle, a show complete with witnesses to speak in his defense. Stay tuned. And while the House Intelligence Committee was handing off the impeachment case to the Judiciary Committee, Trump's personal lawyer was making a mockery of the impeachment by returning to the scene of the crime. Rudy Giuliani was brazenly off to Ukraine, meeting with the very people who'd promoted the disproven theories that the Bidens were on the take and that Democrats colluded with Ukraine to throw the 20. 16 election to Hillary Clinton. Rudy met with a Ukrainian lawmaker who's promoted Russian interest in Ukraine, who studied at a KGB academy in Moscow. Giuliani met with a former Ukrainian lawmaker who once asked the White House to lift sanctions on Russia and to officially accept Russia's taking of Crimea to agree with the Russians that that part of Ukraine is really part of Russia now after the first international land grab since World War II. Rudy met with a disgraced former Ukrainian diplomat who's become a right-wing hero in the U.S. because he thinks his country colluded with the DNC to try to beat Trump in 2016. Trump says Rudy learned a lot while he was there this week and that Rudy brought back information or disinformation for the Senate trial, which will apparently be more about bizarre charges against the Democrats than it will be about the very serious substantiated charges against the president. As if mocking the impeachment and its seriousness, Giuliani took with him on his trip to Ukraine a correspondent from the pro-Trump TV network One American News. They're making a documentary together, one guaranteed to be packed with more Russian disinformation. Together they hope to disprove the disproval of their information, to try to make the untrue true. Even Republicans, including Florida's Matt Gates, expressed astonishment at the timing of Rudy's trip and the brazen nerve of it. Also investigating the Bidens in Ukraine, Senate Trump defender Lindsey Graham, who's asked Secretary of State Pompeo for anything he has on former Vice President Joe Biden, Biden's son Hunter, and Ukraine. Graham is a willing participant in the Russian disinformation campaign to shift blame in the Russian disinformation campaign of 2016. 
Lindsey Graham was on the verge of tears in 2015 when he told a reporter, if you can't admire Joe Biden as a person, you've got a problem, calling Biden the nicest person I've ever met in politics, as good a man as God has ever created. That was at the funeral of Biden's son, Beau. Now Graham and other Senate Republicans want to drag Biden's only remaining son, Hunter, in for testimony, hoping to knock Biden out of contention for the Democratic nomination in 2020. Senators Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson, meanwhile, are asking for any documents the Treasury Department may have on the Bidens in Ukraine. But Graham says his real focus will be the origins of the FBI's Russia investigation. Rudy Giuliani isn't a very good defense lawyer, at least not in this case. Giuliani has, surprisingly, foolishly, already destroyed his client's best defenses. On Twitter, Rudy wrote, The conversation about corruption in Ukraine was based on compelling evidence of criminal conduct by then-VP Biden. First, the conversation about corruption to which Giuliani refers never happened. In the White House notes from Trump's July 25th call to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, Trump tells Zelensky he wants investigations of the Bidens and the 2016 Democrats. In that call, Trump says nothing about corruption in Ukraine which is what he and Republicans claim Trump was really worried about, the investigation they say he was really trying to get. Like Trump himself, Giuliani has now shot down that defense by saying investigations of the Bidens and the 2016 Democrats. But to Rudy and the Republicans, including Trump, it's all the same thing. And now Rudy's back from Ukraine with more disinformation from Russia, not to defend Trump, but to try to further muddy the water around him. If you are going to impeach me, do it now, fast, so we can have a fair trial in the Senate, so our country can get back to business. Those are the tweeted words of our chief executive. Hurry up and do it, he says, even while Republicans and some Democrats argue this impeachment has already moved too fast for its own good. It was a week ago today that the bulletin came. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced that House committees would draw up articles of impeachment against President Trump. She said the president's abuse of power against our ally Ukraine left, quote, no choice but to act. She said she wished the president had not made this necessary. It is now more certain than ever that Trump will be impeached by Christmas. Trump told reporters it's a hoax. It's a hoax. It's a big fat hoax. End quote. But the impeachment continued to lurch forward. Saturday, House Democrats released a report that lays out the legal and historical standards for their case against this president. The report points to where this impeachment is headed, abuse of power and pressuring Ukraine to announce an investigation of his political rivals and obstruction of Congress by blocking witnesses and withholding documents. The report says inviting a foreign government to interfere in our politics unquestionably qualifies as high crimes and misdemeanors. The 52-page report is titled Constitutional Grounds for Presidential Impeachment, and it's very much like a document drawn up in the Nixon impeachment. Quoting the report, impeachable bribery occurs when the president offers, solicits, or accepts something of personal value to influence his own official actions. The report says the framers of the Constitution wanted to make sure the nation could ditch a leader who would sell out the interest of the people for his own personal gain. What we've learned from constitutional scholars in the past three weeks is that the Founding Fathers had three possible criteria for impeachable high crimes and misdemeanors, abuse of power, betrayal of national security, and corruption of elections. 
But constitutional experts agreed Trump has met all three criteria and is therefore completely eligible for impeachment and removal from office since he only needs one. Throughout the weekend, in the House Speaker's office, in some offices in the Rayburn and Longworth office buildings, Democrats worked through the weekend debating and writing articles of impeachment. Their assignment was to choose two to four articles from a list that included these possibles, abuse of power, obstruction of justice, and obstruction of Congress. They were also told to assemble an impeachment report that's expected to be several hundred pages thick. Surrounded by coffee cups and soda cans, pizza boxes, and Thanksgiving leftovers, lawmakers met to do the paperwork, reports the New York Times. Likewise, lawmakers huddled under blankets in the chilly Ways and Means Committee room to rehearse for the marathon hearing that would begin Monday morning at 9 a.m. A lot of Democrats worked over the weekend, representatives and their staffs from the Judiciary, Intelligence, and Oversight Committees all working together to draft these articles of impeachment. Among the things they rehearsed, Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler's quickness in shutting down parliamentary interruptions, such as the ones displayed by Republicans in the Intelligence Committee hearings. The other committee members rehearsed their questions and looked for the best ways to word them. They practiced not asking questions that would only get the expected answers. Trump spent the weekend, or at least half of it, tweeting. He tweeted or retweeted more than 100 times just on Sunday after the White House counsel had made it very clear the president and his lawyers would again pass on the chance to defend him before the House. On Monday, the House Judiciary Committee held its first public hearing, first to accept the reports of the Oversight and Intelligence Committees and to enter its own report into the record. The committee also heard opening arguments from the lawyers representing House Republicans and the lawyers representing House Democrats. It was another long day. For confused or undecided Americans, there were two sets of facts presented at this week's second and final House Judiciary Committee hearing in the impeachment inquiry. The lawyer for Democrats on the committee and the lawyer for Republicans each laid out four claims, and there is no overlap. Democratic Committee Counsel Dan Goldman's four, that Trump directed a scheme to press Ukraine into opening two investigations, that he used his office to withhold an Oval Office meeting and $391 million in security assistance to Ukraine, that everyone involved in the scheme was in the loop, and that even after getting caught, the president continued his scheme by sending Rudy Giuliani back to Ukraine for dirt on the Bidens. Republican committee member Jim Jordan offered these four as facts. That Trump's call to the president of Ukraine did not show evidence of pressure. That Ukraine's presidents repeatedly denied feeling pressure. That Ukraine didn't know the security aid was held up. And that the aid was ultimately released without any announcement of the investigations Trump supposedly wanted. Taken by one by one, the Republicans argue that that July 25th call to Volodymyr Zelensky was, as Trump has described it, Perfect. In fact, in the White House notes, Trump says, I'd like you to do us a favor, though, right after Zelensky inquires about military assistance. Trump follows his favor request by talking about conspiracy theories on Democrats, making it clear he wants investigations. Republicans argue Zelensky has said several times he felt no pressure, much as a hostage might say his captor is treating him well. Zelensky knew that if he angered Trump, he would lose that military aid for sure. 
Both evidence and testimony have shot down the Republican claim that Ukraine didn't know it was being pressured. And lastly, Republicans say that military aid was released less than two months after it was put on hold. What they don't say is that the money was only released after the whistleblower's complaint was filed and that Trump only did what Congress had instructed him to do after he'd gotten caught not doing it. But in the battle for public opinion, Republicans are sticking to these claims, and we can expect that to continue into the trial in the Senate that begins next month. Republicans argue that Democrats are trying to overturn the last election, to overturn the will of 63 million Americans who voted for Trump. Never mind the 66 million who voted for Hillary. Many Republicans, and certainly the president and his personal lawyer, continue to pursue a disproven conspiracy theory that Ukraine interfered with our 2016 election in lockstep agreement with Russia's Vladimir Putin, which is not a defense of the president. It is a distraction from the impeachable crimes for which this president now stands accused. Much like the 42 times Republicans interrupted Monday's hearing with objections, points of order, parliamentary inquiries, unanimous consent requests, and moves to strike. Anything to take eyes off the serious charges against Trump. Meanwhile, Democrats repeated throughout Monday's marathon judiciary hearing that the president had abused his power for his own personal political benefit. This is a big deal, argued Democratic Committee Counsel Barry Berg, adding, President Trump did what a president of our nation is not allowed to do. And after a hearing that ended nearly 10 hours after it had begun, the nation braced itself for a news conference set for Tuesday morning. Let history show that it was a little after 9 a.m. East Coast time on the morning of Tuesday, December 9th, 2019, that Nancy Pelosi and House Committee Chairman, surrounded by flags, stepped up to a microphone to announce articles of impeachment against the 45th President of the United States. There are two articles. The reason there are only two? Because as much of the public as possible and as many lawmakers as possible need to be persuaded toward impeachment in order for it to succeed. Quoting a senior Democratic aide, the leadership made the calculation that less is more and that getting into a confusing investigation would lose impact. Also, at least 10 moderate Democrats who are worried about the seats they won in districts carried by Trump are not completely on board with impeachment and have said they would prefer the president was censured and official public scolding by the House. In any event, the idea here is to keep the impeachment simple and inarguable. One article is for abuse of power, which Democrats hope to prove using the president's own words and the words of his acting chief of staff. Those words include, I can do anything I want. I would like you to do us a favor, though. And Mick Mulvaney's get over it. Everyone heard those remarks, and no one can reasonably argue they did not happen. The other article is for obstruction of Congress, which Democrats hope to prove with the president's actions. In ordering everyone in the executive branch to refuse to cooperate with the House's constitutional oversight, withholding both documents and witnesses. Quoting the nine-page document, In the history of the Republic, no president has ever ordered the complete defiance of an impeachment inquiry or sought to obstruct and impede so comprehensively the ability of the House to investigate high crimes and misdemeanors. Here again, everyone has witnessed this for themselves and no one can reasonably argue they did not happen. 
Many progressives were disappointed that after all those mentions of bribery, Democrats did not include it, at least in their initial official announcement. Many were disappointed that Trump's alleged obstruction of justice in the Mueller investigation and his behavior cited in the Mueller report were not included in Tuesday morning's announcement. The Mueller report cited at least 10 instances of obstruction of justice by the president, including firing Comey, ordering his White House counsel to fire Mueller, trying to get the attorney general to take over the investigation, and ordering his White House counsel to publicly deny that he'd been ordered to fire Mueller. But the fine print here is that individual lawmakers would be allowed to introduce additional articles that could also be voted on when the Judiciary Committee decides today which articles to be voted on by the full House next week. Obstruction of the Mueller investigation could still be in play. The articles voted on today do not ignore it. The Mueller report has already been introduced as evidence in this impeachment focusing on the Ukraine squeeze. Quoting Jerry Nadler, that he sought foreign interference in our elections both for 2016 and 2020 and that he sought to cover it up presents a pattern that poses a real and present danger to the integrity of the next election, which is one reason we just can't wait for the next election. And Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff also had an answer for those who think this impeachment is being rushed. Quoting Schiff, the argument, why don't you just wait, amounts to this. Why don't you just let him cheat in one more election? Why not let him have foreign help just one more time? As this newscast is first published, the House Judiciary Committee has reconvened to hear proposed amendments on the articles of impeachment and to vote before the day is out on whether to send those articles to the full House for a vote next week. Last night, in prime time, each member of the House Judiciary Committee, Republican and Democrat, gave five-minute opening arguments for today's debate. Most notable was that members of each party cited the Constitution, the Founding Fathers, and their oath of office in support of their very parallel arguments. Chairman Nadler opened by saying, we cannot wait for an election to address the president's abuse of power when that abuse threatens the integrity of the 2020 election. Ranking member Doug Collins opened, accusing Democrats of rushing the impeachment and again complained about the absence of Intelligence Committee Adam Schiff as a witness. Louis Gohmert focused not on the impeachment, but instead criticizing the FBI's conduct in the Russia probe. Republican Jim Jordan accused Democrats of not liking the 63 million people who voted for Trump, but Jordan also did not address the charges against Trump. Republican Ken Buck warned Democrats they would lose their House majority in 2020 and see Trump sworn in for a second term. Some Republican claims were wild. John Ratcliffe argued that the words abuse of power and obstruction of Congress are not in the Constitution. One Republican, Jim Sensenbrenner of Wisconsin, even argued in favor of a government in which the president didn't have to answer to Congress. Republicans even complained that Democrats had talked about bribery and then failed to include bribery in the articles of impeachment. Democrats, meanwhile, called on their Republican colleagues to remember the consciences of their party's members during Watergate. Democrat Hank Johnson called this impeachment an emergency. Tennessee Democrat Stephen Cohen called Trump's attempt to subvert an election an attack on America. Democrat David Cicilline argued that if a president can cheat to win an election, the people lose their votes, their voices, and their democracy. Jamie Raskin warned that if we allow this president to invite foreign governments to influence our elections, future presidents of both parties will do the same. Democrat Greg Stanton argued that were this anyone other than Trump, they'd be in a jailhouse, not the White House. 
My God, declared Democrat Veronica Escobar when she pointed out that Republicans were arguing the same points as Vladimir Putin. There is one crucial battle being lost by Democrats even while their impeachment stays on track. And it's a crucial part of that battle for public opinion, that fight for reality. Republicans have spent exponentially more on TV and Facebook ads accusing Democrats of ignoring the needs of the country while focusing on ousting this president. Democrats are widely being painted as do-nothing radicals while the Democratic Party officials lay back and do comparatively nothing. Never mind the effect this could have on the impeachment itself, but it's especially worrisome to the Democrats running for re-election in swing districts. More troubling still to Democrats who got elected in predominantly Republican districts, some of those moderate Democrats, five perhaps, are expected to vote against this impeachment. Republicans report the Washington Post have spent $10 million on ads targeting Democrats in districts that Trump won in 2016. None of the 30 Democrats targeted by these ads have run any ads of their own to counter the Republican attacks. With their ads, Republicans have been raising money and roping in more supporters, and, they hope, chipping away at public support for impeachment. Never mind that House Democrats have passed hundreds of bills that languish unattended on Mitch McConnell's desk in the Senate. Never mind that in the midst of this impeachment, they passed yet another bill, this one to lower prescription drug prices, that will also collect dust in McConnell's stately office. Never mind that Trump got his space force during the impeachment inquiry yesterday, and in trade, Democrats got paid family leave for federal workers. Never mind that Tuesday morning, an hour after announcing articles of impeachment against Trump, Nancy Pelosi handed him a huge political victory, a new trade deal to replace NAFTA that he's been pushing called USMCA. It was a way of showing, again, that even with a focus on impeachment, Democrats can be and are equally focused on legislating, of serving the American people capable of walking and chewing gum at the same time. Never mind that, because the battle for public opinion is what matters, not the facts. The trouble with a battle for reality is that some people are willing to take that battle to the next level. That's a deep concern for Salon.com's Bob Seska. Um, Thanks, Buzz. CBS News posted a video on Wednesday featuring Trump supporters waiting in line outside the president's Hershey, Pennsylvania rally the other day. The first three red hats in the footage, shocker, two of the three are older white men, either predict violence or they literally threaten violence should Trump be convicted in the Senate as part of the impeachment process. These deluded suckers are willing to trigger another civil war, presumably, in the name of defending this cartoonish monster with dictator envy who gets all of his actionable information from Fox News Channel. This is the weirdo they've decided has earned an armed conflict, pitting fathers against daughters, sons against mothers, idiots against normals. The host of The Celebrity Apprentice, who's the laughingstock of the world, has convinced these poor bastards that he's their messiah, the next Reagan by way of God himself. Here's the thing. If your concept of political payback is to pick up a 357 Magnum and fire away, as one of the guys in the video threatened, you have no bloody idea what democracy means. See, in America, when the other side engages in behavior worthy of accountability, the Constitution prescribes elections, free speech and assembly, checks and balances, and yes, impeachment 
as remedies. That's what we do in a democracy. We vote, we protest, we complain. We use words and nonviolent action to push our causes. We don't bypass all that and jump right to shooting people. And if that's what we want to do, then we have no respect for or understanding of the mechanisms of small R Republican democracy. I'm not concerned, though, because most of these people are cowards who'd rather toss empty beer cans at their televisions than bullets at Democrats. Besides, it's unlikely that Trump will be convicted in the Senate unless there's some sort of investigatory bombshell lurking backstage. And even then, the Republicans have almost entirely disconnected themselves from factual reality. The two articles of impeachment introduced this week by the House Democrats effectively carpet bombed the Trump presidency, and the writing itself is stellar. Every Democratic candidate for president ought to memorize the key passages and repeat them verbatim during their rallies. There have been very few documents that have so saliently defined the reasons why Trump is a national security threat and indeed a threat to the people of the United States. History will record these words, regardless of whether they trigger an actual Senate conviction. Yet there are countless millions, several of whom appeared in the CBS News video, who will never accept any of it, any of it, as the truth. Donald Trump, the late Roger Ailes, Rupert Murdoch, and all of their enablers have completed the manufacturing of Karl Rove's non-reality-based empire. While impeachment hearings in the Judiciary Committee cranked along this week, the Justice Department's Inspector General, Michael Horowitz, released a report about the origins, or oranges, as the Red Hat's marble man once said, of the Trump-Russia investigation. The point of the Horowitz report was to see whether the probe was motivated by anti-Trump bias or a so-called deep state coup. It's a bogus conspiracy theory that I forecasted years ago. In fact, I wrote the following for Salon back in April of 2017. Quote, most Trumpers will almost entirely consider the investigation into Russiagate to be the real coup d'etat. On top of that, public outcry about an alleged deep state coup could spark unrest and violence by Trump supporters who feel as if the White House is being usurped by sinister or even criminal elements inside the government, unquote. The uh, unrest and violence among Trump supporters is most recently illustrated by that CBS News video. And the myth of the coup itself continues to be quite real to these people, including Trump and his Republican allies on the Hill. It didn't matter a lick that Horowitz found no evidence of any such thing, no bias, no coup attempt. For Trump, however, none of that mattered. Rather than merely shaving the corners off the truth of the report, Trump behaved as if the report said exactly what Trump's been saying, the opposite of what Horowitz concluded. Quote, this was an overthrow of government. This was an attempted overthrow, and a lot of people were in on it, unquote. The report specifically states, quote, we did not find documentary or testimonial evidence that political bias or improper motivation influenced the decision to open Crossfire Hurricane, unquote. However, millions of people will believe Donald Trump in spite of zero evidence proving his claim and in spite of the fact that Trump refuses to allow Congress to see any evidence that might exonerate his White House. Trump couldn't possibly look more guilty. The only thing he could do would be to confess his guilt, which, by the way, he already has in the Ukraine impeachment proceeding. And even that didn't matter to his fanboys and congressional allies. For nearly half of us, belief, believing something to be true despite objective reality, has become the new fact. Trumpism 
is the new religion and its worshipers don't care about reality and damn well don't care about the functioning of democracy. There's a chance they'll outgrow this collective madness, this societal rot they're responsible for, but I doubt it. We can only hope they'll slowly fade away by marginalization or shaming. Some of them might even snap out of it, as they did after George W. Bush started painting things and after he finished torturing people. We have no choice, though. It's either Trumpism and its disciples or it's democracy and factual reality. The latter can't be allowed to die, even while the President of the United States pumps the Constitution and its remedies into a Trump-branded paper shredder. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I join Bob on his Tuesday shows. For three years, Trump has verbally assaulted the men and women of the United States Intelligence Services and especially the FBI. He's insulted them and called them traitors. He's suspected a deep state conspiracy against him and believes that was the motivation for the FBI's Russia interference investigation. Trump's minions spread that belief from Fox News on down to Devin Nunes, who falsely claimed Obama had the FBI wiretap Trump Tower. Like that disproven paranoia, so too now is his fever dream about the FBI. In a 434-page report, the Inspector General of the Justice Department has finished the long and careful investigation he'd been ordered to conduct into the origins of the Russia investigation. He found there was good reason to start the Russia probe. He found no deep state conspiracy, no institutional bias, no political motivation for starting the investigation or for any aspect of it. The inspector general also debunked the right-wing theory that it all started with the Steele dossier. And we already knew, based on previous reporting, the IG reports it actually started on July 31st, 2016, three days after a Trump campaign aide drunkenly told an Australian ambassador about Russia having damaging information on Hillary Clinton. The report was based on more than one million documents and over 170 interviews, the most complete investigation since Robert Mueller himself. And although the IG found that serious mistakes were made, no laws were broken by the FBI, as Republicans have claimed, and IG Michael Horowitz reiterated all that in live testimony before a Senate committee yesterday. Now that the FBI's mistakes have been identified, FBI Director Chris Wray has proposed about 40 separate reforms to help assure those mistakes don't happen again. But contrary to Trumpublican claims, the DOJ's IG has determined that the FBI's Russia probe was justified, legal, and unbiased. This did not go down well in Trump world, so another attack on the nation's law enforcement agency began. Inspector General Michael Horowitz is not the only official tasked by Attorney General William Barr to get to the bottom of how and why the Russia investigation started. He had given that same assignment to a U.S. attorney in Utah, John Durham. And so it was that on Tuesday, after the inspector general's report was out, both John Durham and Bill Barr weighed in with views sharply different than those of the inspector general. Despite what you have just heard about the IG's report, Barr responded by saying that report, quote, makes clear the FBI launched an intrusive investigation of a U.S. presidential campaign on the thinnest of suspicions insufficient to justify the steps taken. 
Barr carried the ball the rest of the way, adding the evidence produced was consistently exculpatory. But it was not. The Barr knows most Americans won't read it, just like they didn't read the Mueller report that he also took the liberty to interpret for them. Barr's attack was full-throated, slamming former officials for gross abuses and what he calls inexplicable behavior. From Russia to Ukraine to this, one false narrative after another in the battle for reality. The Attorney General of the United States is using a false narrative to discredit the nation's federal law enforcement, maybe permanently, to make Trump happy. Quoting one downtrodden Justice Department employee, he seems a lot more of a Kool-Aid drinker than I expected, adding, once you start wounding public confidence in the Bureau, that's got an impact on our ability to get convictions in our cases. Likewise, U.S. Attorney John Durham argued his investigation is much better than the IG's, much more extensive than the Inspector General's, and he says his report will have the rest of the story. And he says he'll have the rest of the story in midsummer, in the midst of the presidential campaigns. Trump took to Twitter the next morning to tear into FBI Director Christopher Wray, who had announced about 40 reforms in light of the IG's report. Trump implied that he and Ray must have read different reports, adding, with that attitude, he'll never be able to fix the FBI, which is badly broken. Three years in, and despite the findings of that exhaustive Inspector General's report, Trump was still bashing the FBI. It was just four days ago, Monday, that Trump told North Korea's Kim Jong-un he has everything to lose by acting aggressively through his ongoing missile tests. Quoting from Trump's tweet, Kim Jong-un is too smart and has far too much to lose, everything actually, if he acts in a hostile way. The day before, North Korea had launched yet another missile with plans to launch more. If Trump were smart, he'd stop talking about everything except the economy. Whether it is to his credit or not, that is the one area in which he still gets high marks in the public opinion polls. And were he not focused on impeachment and paranoid conspiracy theories, he might talk about nothing but the 3.5% unemployment rate, the lowest in half a century. The U.S. added 266,000 new jobs in November, despite Trump's tariffs. Unless the Supreme Court acts, and it might, tomorrow is the day the hold comes off the House subpoenas for Trump's financial documents from Capital One and Deutsche Bank. An appeals court had given the banks one week to turn over those documents and order appealed by Trump's White House lawyers. But last Friday night, Justice Ginsburg put a freeze on that order to give herself and her fellow justices time to ponder the matter before them and whether they should hear the case. If they decide to act, they have about four weeks to get to it. Trump has asked that they rule and do so quickly. Ginsburg gave her hold an expiration date of tomorrow, Friday the 13th. Trump's lawyers argued that the subpoenas ask for too much, including the finances of other members of his family, and that asking for these documents at all raises serious concerns about the separation of powers. This is one of three cases about Trump's financial records. Two of the three involve House subpoenas that are being litigated in courts. Another appeals court has ruled that his longtime accounting firm, Mazars, also has to turn over Trump's financial papers. And yet another appeals court has ruled that Mazars has to turn over the records to a New York grand jury investigation. 
but her emails, some shouted, but his phone calls, some replied. The Washington Post quotes former U.S. officials as saying that Trump routinely communicated with Rudy Giuliani on cell phones vulnerable to monitoring by Russia and other countries. It happened all the time, says a former senior aide. Not only that, but phone records brought forth this week by the House Intelligence Committee reveal frequent communication between Giuliani and various people at the White House, several of whom are implicated in the Ukraine scandal. In one of the records, you may recall, Trump appears as hyphen one. If, in fact, Russia knew that Trump was squeezing Ukraine for a favor and lying about it, then Russia once again had compromise on Trump, meaning the ability to blackmail him, a nightmare of the founding fathers. Monitoring the Ukraine calls between Trump and Giuliani would also give Russia a heads up on how their propaganda campaign is going and how they might improve it. Trump has given his private, unsecured phone number to British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, French President Emmanuel Macron, and most concerning Turkish President Recep Erdogan. Former Chief of Staff John Kelly said he and the rest of the staff and intelligence officials all tried back in 2017 to get Trump to use only secure White House lines, even after he retreated to his private residence, but to no avail. Trump doesn't like his calls being tracked, even by the White House staff. Trump now uses a government cell phone with tougher security that does get routinely scrubbed, but it's still not as secure as a White House landline. The president who led chance of lock her up over Clinton's emails, even though she was exonerated of wrongdoing, has committed far more concerning security lapses. Again, this is the same president who in February 2017 reviewed classified documents about North Korea in front of the Japanese prime minister and other diners at Mar-a-Lago. This is the same president who revealed top-secret intelligence to the Russian foreign minister that he had backup to the Oval Office on Tuesday of this week. As always, the list goes on, including Trump's reveal of classified information about the recent raid that killed top terrorist Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. But her emails, indeed. Levin Igor update. Well, Lev, anyway. Prosecutors have asked the judge to keep Giuliani associate Lev Parnas behind bars as they now view him as an extreme flight risk after discovering that Parnas got a million bucks from a Russian account the month before he was charged with conspiring to funnel foreign money into U.S. political campaigns. Stay tuned. Another court ruling? Another defeat for Trump on his border wall. On Tuesday, a federal judge in Texas blocked Trump's plans to pay for his border wall by using over $3.5 billion that Congress had assigned to the military for its own badly needed construction projects. The judge's ruling wipes out about a third of the money that Trump was planning to spend on the wall to stop the immigrants he tells Red Hats are hacking Americans to death. It is also a powerful blow to Trump's plans to have 450 miles of wall built by Election Day 2020. The judge ruled that Trump broke the law by reassigning that military money, but that Trump is allowed to reassign $2 billion in military money that had been earmarked to fight narcotics trafficking. The administration is, of course, planning to appeal the judge's decision. His ruling came in a lawsuit filed by El Paso County, which argued that community doesn't want the wall and that it would permanently wreck its reputation as a welcoming place for border crossings in both directions. This was the first successful lawsuit brought by a local community to stop the wall, and it won't be the last. Trump wants to build almost all of the Texas wall on private land the government has yet to acquire. 
thousands of parcels of land, some of which contain American homes. Take the land, Trump ordered his staff in August. Last Friday, the federal government filed its first attempt at taking 13 acres of private property in the Rio Grande Valley, launching an ugly battle between Trump and Texans, many of whom are or were his supporters. Despite a court order against it, Trump supporters who want the wall are building their own wall using tens of millions of dollars raised through crowdfunding. Within three days of the issuance of a temporary restraining order, an anti-immigrant group had its construction crews back on the job with nearly a dozen pieces of heavy equipment moving soil and installing tall metal posts. This privately funded wall poses an irreparable environmental threat to the National Butterfly Center, a popular nature preserve whose ecosystem sustains hundreds of native butterflies and birds. The wall would serve as a dam in heavy rains that would flood the 100-acre preserve. There are widespread concerns about the environmental impacts of Trump's wall as well. To that end, the Trump administration has suspended more than two dozen laws on clean water, endangered species, public lands, and the rights of Native Americans. The investigation continues into a mass shooting in the shadow of New York City. In New Jersey, a man and a woman with long rifles targeted a kosher supermarket after using their guns on police. The first shots were fired in a local cemetery, followed at the market with long and rapid bursts of gunfire. We now have evidence the gunmen were motivated by a hatred of Jews and police. It was a hate crime and a domestic terror attack, complete with what we have incorrectly come to call a manifesto. That kosher market was considered the hub of the neighborhood's Jewish community. The two people conducting the attack were both killed by police. Arthur Acevedo was waiting outside. As the police chief of Houston, Texas, Acevedo was outside the medical examiner's office, waiting to escort the body of one of his officers to a funeral home. Sergeant Brewster had been killed, as so many are, answering a domestic violence call. Chief Acevedo was brokenhearted and angry. He was angry because he believes the shooter never should have had access to a gun. And that's when this grieving police chief cut loose on Mitch McConnell, Ted Cruz, and fellow Texas Senator John Cornyn for not reauthorizing the Violence Against Women Act that kept guns out of the hands of violent boyfriends as well as husbands. The boyfriend in this case had already been convicted of domestic violence on another woman. And who killed our sergeant, asked the chief angrily, a boyfriend abusing his girlfriend. He continued, you are either here for women and children, for our daughters, sisters, and aunts, or you're here for the NRA. So I don't want to see their little smug faces talking about how much they care about law enforcement when I'm bearing a sergeant because they don't want to piss off the NRA. Whose side are you on, he demanded. Gun manufacturers or the children that are getting gunned down in this country every single day? Much overlooked but vitally important, especially now, is education. After spending billions to catch up with the rest of the world in reading and math scores, those scores have been stagnant in the U.S. for nearly 20 years now. And the gap between our strongest students and our weakest is widening. The top 25% of the class has improved since 2012, but students already struggling lost even more ground. Overall, our 15-year-olds are scoring slightly above similar nations in reading, but below average in math. 
None of our spending so far has moved the needle. Not no child left behind, not race to the top, not common core, and not the Every Student Succeeds Act. Most of them aimed specifically at those underperforming students. And those underperforming students face grim prospects when they go hunting for jobs. Quoting one education expert at Harvard, it just isn't working. Something else happened on Monday that hasn't gotten enough attention. Let's change that. About 4,000 truck drivers in the U.S. found out two weeks before Christmas that they are suddenly unemployed and without benefits. No severance, no health care, nothing. Their former employer, Celadon, has filed for the biggest bankruptcy in trucking history. The Indianapolis company had annual revenues of over a billion dollars until 2016. But mounting debts and a federal fraud investigation took their tolls on the company in an already tough industry. Many of those 4,000 drivers were left stranded this week, their fuel cards cut off and with no directions about what to do with their trucks or the goods that were supposed to have been delivered. Many of the stranded truckers just waited in their trucks for bus tickets to arrive so they could return to their homes unemployed. Celadon's former chief financial officer, Bobby Lee Peevler, and his former chief operating officer, Eric Meek, were arrested just days before the bankruptcy was declared, indicted on multi-million dollar fraud. Nearly 800 trucking companies have shut down in the first nine months of 2019, making job prospects thinner for these 4,000 newly unemployed drivers. Uber reported this week that here in the U.S. there were more than 3,000 sexual assaults in its vehicles over the past year and that drivers were the victims in nearly half of those assaults. It's a tiny fraction of the 1.3 billion rides in this country Uber gave last year. A top Uber executive calls the numbers jarring but adds Uber is a reflection of the society it serves. He says the company's introduced new safety measures to reduce the number of assaults even further. As it stands, even with that shocking number of 3,000 sexual assaults, Uber's safety record stands at 99.9%. Our 16-year-old person of the year, a record-setting cannonball run, and pigeons in little hats in the final segment after this. The average investigative article in Rolling Stone magazine is about 7,500 words long. The number of words in my report this week, nearly 11,000. The words come from me, but the news comes from a variety of reliable sources that charge for their services, understandably and rightly so. There are computer expenses, software and server fees, websites and high-speed internet, and the care and feeding of professional broadcast quality equipment to make the show listenable. This newscast is free to you, but not free to make. If you'd like to contribute to this effort, please click on the PayPal Donate button on the upper right at buzzburbank.com or on your phone. It's just below the title, Buzz Burbank News and Comment. And there's still a little Amazon button on my page if you're shopping anyway. Clicking through my website and bookmarking that Amazon page still helps. You may need to turn off your pop-up or ad blockers to see all the useful links on my page, but it's both safe and helpful. Whatever you do, or whatever you've done, however you do it, thank you. 16-year-old climate activist Greta Thunberg has just been named Time Magazine's Person of the Year, and that makes her the youngest person ever to earn that title in the magazine's 92-year history. 
Gunberg made her mark by organizing school strikes and protest marches to call attention to the climate crisis. And she's called out world leaders for debating facts and for failing to act to save the children who will inherit the planet. She is also considered a candidate for this year's Nobel Peace Prize, but Greta recently rejected cash and honors from the Nordic Council, saying it's a huge honor, but the climate movement does not need any more awards. The ice of Greenland is now losing seven times as much ice as it did in the 1990s just 20 years ago, seven times as much. Losing 33 billion tons per year in the 90s, Greenland is now losing over 250 billion tons per year. The annual ice sculpture display isn't there this year at a park in North Pole, Alaska. Not enough ice. It's the first cancellation in the 14-year history of the display in a city where, understandably, Christmas is celebrated year-round. But this ice park, normally situated near the Santa Claus House gift shop, won't have its familiar Christmas-themed ice sculptures this year. There isn't enough ice in the ponds to harvest for the carvers that usually attend from around the world. North Pole, Alaska has been almost 8 degrees warmer than normal this year, and warmer than last year. Anchorage, meanwhile, recently had both a record high temperature and a record snowfall all in the same day. Anchorage got more than a foot one day last month after an earlier daytime record high of 45 degrees. A new report this week shows that the oxygen in our oceans is being lost at an unprecedented rate. Oxygen is badly depleted in hundreds of parts of the ocean now with a growing number of dead zones a growing agriculture industry, and climate change. Get the blame? Industrial farming dumps tons of fertilizer into the water, causing algae blooms that devour oxygen as they decompose. All fish need oxygen in their water, but that is especially true of the larger species who need even more oxygen to survive. Our oceans are also now more acidic than they were before the industrial age by 26%. The oceans are now also plagued with plastic waste while they remain ravaged from overfishing. The last living female Sumatran rhinoceros has died at a sanctuary in Borneo. That species is now extinct in its nation of origin, Malaysia. Worldwide, Sumatran rhinos are among the most endangered species, critically endangered with only about 30 of them left, according to the World Wildlife Fund. Rhinos are disappearing not so much because of poachers, but because their habitats are disappearing, mostly through the harvest of trees for palm oil and firewood. Investments in breeding programs and advances in rhino reproduction technology are rays of hope. School cafeterias in the U.S. are wasting 530,000 tons of food each year, according to a study from the World Wildlife Fund. It's a measurement of food served but not eaten. Some is thrown away by students, the rest is thrown away by cafeteria workers. The cost of taxpayers for this wasted food is nearly $10 million a day and nearly $2 billion a year, not to mention the environmental impact. Producing the food we waste produces well over 3.3 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide every year. Schools in the study that were advised of this waste we're able to cut that waste on average by 3% just through awareness. Elementary schools were able to cut waste by 15%. The WWF wants food waste monitored to keep that awareness and to continue to cut food waste.
Even amid a bitter impeachment battle, Democrats and Republicans are finding middle ground and on health care, no less. Specifically, they agree no one likes devastating surprise medical bills. So the leaders from both parties in both the House and the Senate have reached a deal on how to eliminate those devastating surprise medical bills and to do so, to act at least, by New Year's Eve. But quoting a New York Times article, a dark money group funded by private equity-backed physician staffing firms has spent tens of millions of dollars in television and direct mail advertising in a bid to scuttle the legislation. The fertility rate in the U.S., fell again this year, four years in a row now. The decline began in the Great Recession that began in early 2008, but this time, unlike all the others, it didn't bounce back with the economic recovery. Our birth rate has dropped by about 15% since 2007. There were nearly 4 million births in 2018. Still, women of childbearing age in every age group are having fewer babies. A birth rate that dips too low leaves a country without enough young people to replace the workforce and to support the elderly, as is the case today in Japan and Russia. We are currently in one of the longest declines in U.S. fertility in history, and experts are trying to figure out whether this is a blip in the timeline or if it's the new normal from some major social change. For one thing, it appears millennial women are putting off kids until they're up on their feet professionally and financially. Speaking of millennials... More Americans are dying young. Even though we spend more on health care than any other country on earth, early death is on the rise in this country, shortening the lifespans of people who should be in the primes of their lives, people ages 25 to 64. Life expectancies for that age group and other wealthy nations have lengthened. Ours have shortened. Suicides, drug overdoses, liver disease, cell phone distracted driving, obesity, and guns all share the blame. And more of the diseases that once afflicted mostly men are now afflicting more women. The death rate for working people in the U.S. is now up by 6% after a life expectancy that kept expanding for decades is now headed the other way for the third straight year. Here's your new flu review. This flu season is, as expected, off to its earliest start in 15 years. An early start could mean a more deadly flu, the last early start in 2003 was an especially nasty flu season. Too early to tell what this one will be like. The strain we're seeing now, though, is less dangerous, but oddly, the kind of flu we usually see in the spring, not in December. It struck the south first, now spreading to other states coast to coast, as it is wont to do. There were over 3,000 new cases last week, pushing the total so far to nearly 2 million now. Thanksgiving travel and socializing helped it spread. Wash your hands frequently. The number of cases appears to be up this year because so many people still don't get their flu shots. But it's still not too late. You'll phone your eye out, kid. We learned this week of a rise in head, neck, and facial injuries involving cell phones. People have dropped them on their faces while laying down. People have walked into poles or tripped and fallen because they were looking at their phones instead of where they were going. The injuries began to spike in 2006 when the first smartphones were introduced. Phones got smarter, but people less so. After two years in court, Harvey Weinstein's former film studio has agreed to pay $25 million to be divided among dozens of his victims accusing him of sexual misconduct through that studio. 
the now bankrupt Weinstein Company still has a board of directors and no longer in the film business, it will distribute the money to the victims according to this court-approved settlement. More than 30 actresses and employees are among those alleged victims, and their own lawyers have signed off on the settlement. Also part of the settlement, Harvey Weinstein admits no wrongdoing, nor does he personally have to pay a dime. Passings and passages. This week we lost Carol Spinney, the man who was Big Bird on Sesame Street for decades. He passed away at 85 in his Connecticut home just hours before Sesame Street won a Kennedy Center honor for its achievement in the arts. Carol Spinney spelled his name with two L's, Carol, but there was only one L on his birth certificate. His parents named him Carol with one L because he was born the day after Christmas in 1933. We also said goodbye to actor Ron Liebman, a Tony winner who was also known for his film roles in Norma Ray and Slaughterhouse-Five. He played a lawyer in a TV series called Kaz, for which he won an Emmy. He had a recurring role on Friends as Rachel's dad. Taken by pneumonia, Liebman is survived by his wife, actress Jessica Walter. It was a rough week for us Star Trek fans. D.C. Fontana, who wrote some of the original series' most classic episodes, died at the age of 80. For women writers in science fiction, Fontana was a pioneer. It is thanks to her that viewers began to see the Enterprise crew as more than just their jobs, but to see them as real people. D.C. Fontana went where no woman had gone before, and her mission has now ended. It has ended as well for Odo from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Beloved actor René Abergenois died this week at age 79. He was also well-known for his 71 episodes of Boston Legal and for his role as Benson's chief of staff. That role landed him an Emmy nomination, as did his role as a judge on ABC's The Practice. Abergenois also appeared on The Jeffersons, L.A. Law, Frasier, and It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. His first film role was as Father Mulcahy in M.A.S.H. His fellow actors remember him as a very nice man. 73-year-old Pat Sajak has returned to the set of Wheel of Fortune after an emergency surgery for an intestinal blockage. Disney has become the first movie company to cross the $10 billion mark for a single year, two-thirds of that money from moviegoers outside the U.S. and Canada. And since Disney now owns Fox, that puts this year's take for Disney at $12 billion. Disney's Frozen 2 is number one in theaters this week with another $35 million in its second week. For all the movies, previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please click through the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. You may have to turn off your ad blocker to see it. Also honored in this year's Kennedy Center ceremony was the first female pop icon, Linda Ronstadt. The evening was hosted by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who introduced Ronstadt by saying, As I travel the world, I wonder... When Will I Be Loved, referring to one of Ronstadt's biggest hits. When it was her turn to speak, she said, I'd like to say to Mr. Pompeo, who wonders when he'll be loved, it's when he stops enabling Donald Trump. At first, the audience gasped and then applauded lightly and then burst into cheers. Getting a standing ovation that night also was audience member and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. If you thought the game was already slow, Major League Baseball and the Players Association have agreed to remove marijuana from their list of banned substances. 
Teams had already stopped testing players for marijuana in the states where it's legal. This new agreement makes pot legal in baseball nationwide. The 2008 recession not only gave us fewer babies, it gave us fewer Christmas trees. Fewer were planted during the recession, wherein fewer were purchased. More have been planted since then, but they're too young to cut to make way for future trees. Now, two of our major tree-producing states, North Carolina and Oregon, have fewer trees this year, even though more people than ever are buying live trees. With a smaller supply and a greater demand, tree prices are up, but it isn't hurting sales. Two Christmas parades have been canceled inside of a week in North Carolina after Confederate groups insisted on having a float in those parades. The town of Garner, North Carolina, next to Raleigh, worried the Confederate float might be a target for disruption. The Confederate float has traditionally been part of these parades, but this year there's been a heated debate recently about whether that's appropriate, considering what the Confederacy stood for, human slavery. About 25 miles north in Wake Forest, that town's Christmas parade has also been scrapped for the same reason. The disruption in Washington State, though, was for an SUV driver who got pulled over for excessive Christmas lights. Its roof was covered with colored lights, and there was a light-up Christmas tree on the back. Love the Christmas spirit, tweeted the state troopers, adding, definitely not legal. Being Christmas and all, the SUV driver got off with a warning. Ho, ho, ho. And the spirit of giving was on full display in Baltimore this week as a real estate developer there gave its employees bonuses averaging 50000 bucks apiece. Some new employees got as little as 20 bucks, and some of the company's most productive personnel got as much as two hundred fifty grand. St. John Properties has employees throughout the D.C. suburbs of Maryland and North Virginia with property in eight states. A honey-baked ham employee accidentally left a Missouri store unlocked over Thanksgiving, and somebody got in. And they took pies and left a note. Happy Thanksgiving, said the note. No one was here, and we were in desperate need of pies. Left money, took pies, thanks. Indeed, the pie thieves had taken two pies and left enough money to cover them both, plus tax. Police are calling it an after-hours transaction. From our Make Sense to Me department, a 14-year-old Greenville, North Carolina boy who'd run away from home was found on Monday morning. He was found by a manager opening up the store at a Bed Bath & Beyond. The boy who had spent the night in a display bed was returned to his home by police. Walmart, meanwhile, is apologizing for selling a holiday sweater on its website that shows a wide-eyed Santa standing behind three lines of what is obviously cocaine. Let it snow, declares the sweater Santa, his arms spread wide. The item description read, We all know how snow works. It's a white and powdery, and the best snow comes straight from South America. Walmart has apologized and removed the third-party vendor from its website. Uh, speaking of speed... A team of three drivers consistently broke the law to get their car from New York to L.A. in just over 27 hours. Their average speed, average speed, 103 miles an hour. Their top speed was 193. The only time they got pulled over was after they had arrived in Los Angeles driving the speed limit. The officer noticed the 800-horsepower stealth Mercedes license plate was askew 
as the men were on their way to dinner. One of the men says, every cop I know saw this story and said, oh, man, that's so awesome. In true cannonball run tradition, their finish line was the Portofino Hotel in Redondo Beach. The men say they spent hundreds of hours planning this trip and chose the day before Thanksgiving with no construction and no rain. They say that when they did encounter traffic, their driving was courteous, not aggressive, slipping by the traffic strategically. They slowed down in traffic because if someone panicked and seeing them, people could get hurt or someone might call the highway patrol. The car was modified with room in the back for a cooler full of food and beverages, plus an additional gas tank that allowed the car to hold 60 gallons. They also disguised the car, removing the Mercedes logo and wrapping silvery vinyl over the taillights to make it look like a Honda or Volkswagen. The idea was to confuse police and witnesses not knowing what kind of car it was. The car was equipped with a radar detector, a police scanner, a rifle scope on the roof for spotting deer on the road ahead, and a heat sensor to look for speed traps. When it was over, they had broken the cannonball run record, and it may never be broken again. Our highway spill of the week was in Chicago, where a salt truck, whose job it is to make the roads less slippery, slid on some ice, on a bike path, and into Lake Michigan. The occupants were able to swim to safety, but Lake Michigan is a little saltier today. The artist who designed the functional 18-karat gold toilet that was once in use at the Guggenheim Museum in New York is the same artist who decided to duct tape a banana to a wall and call it art. The banana, says the Italian artist, is called comedian because he says bananas are humorous. Others saw it as a commentary on global trade because, well, that's art. The piece, if you will, sold for $120,000, and that made a nice little story for TV news until a performance artist came along and ate the banana while it was still on display in Miami. The banana, which had already gotten overripe, has now been replaced by a new one. And finally, nothing you have heard so far is as bizarre as what we're seeing this week in Las Vegas. Someone has been going around gluing little cowboy hats on the pigeons. Cowboy hats in red and pink and other colors on pigeons. It would be better for the birds if this were not the case, but at the same time, the pigeons mostly don't seem to mind. The police are so far staying out of this, saying it does not appear to be a police matter. A local pigeon rescue, yes, there is such a thing, is handing out cards to folks along the strip that read, if you see them, feed them. We can get there pretty quick. Quoting the pigeon rescue lady, we either have to molt it off or have it removed. A pigeon expert, yes, we have those too, says he isn't worried about the pigeons. He says they appear to be behaving normally. Quoting him, they look like happy pigeons to me. Well, of course they are. They have little hats. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thank you for listening and your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.